All right. Here's the good news. I only get five verses. Here's the bad news, at least for you. I have to introduce the entire book of Ruth because I won't get to do it on Sunday morning. So, Era, what we do in here is I'm doing all the scripture that I'll do on Sunday morning, but at a depth that the time doesn't allow. So I get to go deeper and hear some questions and some the occasional rebuttal, and uh, we just get to have a good time. So we're in Ruth. So first question for you, what do we know about Ruth already? What do we know about this little book? That's a good name. That's still a great here. name. An unusual book because of that era. You know why? It doesn't mention God. Esther doesn't mention God. This one does. My fault. It's the only book in the Bible named after a Gentile. Or only book in the Old Testament. I guess Luke is named after a Gentile, but... It's the only book in the Old Testament that's named after a non-Jewish person. And uh, what do we know that that she was? If not a Jew, what was she? A Moabite. So what is a Moabite? The cousins? Well, let's look at the backstory. Let me set the stage for the sermon series. Every May... April, May, I try to do something that has some relevance to families. And I am quick to understand that a family is uh, a mom and a dad and 2.5 kids, a picket fence and a dog. And a family is a single adult who's living by themselves. Uh, A family is a single adult who's trying to deal with their own family of origin as they are dealing with aging parents. Uh, A family is uh, two couples who aren't able to conceive. A family is divorced people. A family is remarried people. We are pretty much talking about the entire population, but we're looking at it through the lens of the subset that God intended for us to honor, and that is our family. So our mom, our dad, our grandma, our kids, our cousins, an extended family, and there's uh, Ruth is really a great illustration of that because we read in Ruth that Naomi, and you could have called it Naomi because she talks more in the book and more is said about her in the book than Ruth, uh, or you could call it the book of Obed, who was their child. Uh, you could call it whatever you wanted to call it. It's just intriguing that they use the name of the main character and not the name of the author. A little unusual in the the Bible. Amos, uh, we're pretty sure that Amos wrote. Um, Joel, pretty sure Joel wrote. Jonah, no doubt. Ruth, mm -mm. she didn't write it. It's about her, but she's not real. So let's do a little history. Everybody ready? What do we know ahead of time that Ruth says about family? If this is a series on families, 
Um, what do we know about Ruth or the contents of Ruth that addresses family life? He said, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. So she is basically adopted into a family by her mother. Yes. All right. Didn't she have a, a sister-in-law? Yes. She went back home. Okay. So, so we know that sometimes in families, choices are made. It's likely she never saw that woman again, ever. And, and that happens in fact. We know that uh, there was a necessity for relocation, that they uh, were in Bethlehem and uh, they, there wasn't food and they relocated because they heard there was food in Moab. There's some spiritual connotations for that as far as the, the father spiritually leading the family because... Uh, there might have been a, a trust issue with God in trusting him to provide food. Or there certainly was um, some uh, obedience issues because a Jew would never settle in both. And yet they did. Now, was God orchestrating this whole thing so that we'd have this incredible story? Some have said this is the greatest short story that's ever been written. Or did he make mud pies out of mud in the face of the disobedience of Elimelech uh, and his choices? Did Elimelech die as a judgment or did he just die? Did the kids Malon and Chilion, did they die because of disobedience? Did they die because they were sick? Um, Malon's name uh, means sickly, and Chilion's name means wasting away, so it, it could very well be. But wait a minute, they grew to be adults. They got married, stayed married for almost a decade. So maybe it wasn't a childhood disease. Did God strike them dead, or did they just die? A lot of drama in so let's do the part that we'll never get to do on Sunday morning. Who do you expect wrote Ruth? What's your guess? The scholars are all over the map on this. Anybody got a guess? Does it remind you of any other books or any other narratives in the <clears throat> friendliness towards women or the uh, uh, sympathy, empathy for a, a foreigner? Does it remind you of any other books? That might help identify the author. Would it help if we explored a little bit when it was written? About Rahab. Hmm. If it was much later, possible. I mean, he said Esther earlier. I mean, I wonder if it could have been that same author. Hmm. So let's let's place a date on the book. Do we have any clues in here as to when it might have been written? During the time of the judge. Okay, so there's no doubt as to when the time of the judge is. The, the, the books of the Bible are pretty much in order, at least through uh, Ruth. So you've got 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So after Moses was Joshua, he was the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. So when you when you read uh, the statement or the, the phrase, the, uh, uh, the uh, inhabitation of the promised land or the, uh, the inhabitation of Canaan, then that would have been Joshua's time. So that would have been about 1400 BC-ish. Moses got the Ten Commandments sometime early 1400, as uh, maybe later 1400, 1395, somewhere in there. Joshua entered the Promised Land through Jericho. Keep that in mind for a second, because I'll come back to it. Um, and so Judges then was this period of time after Joshua, after Caleb, after these, these great leaders that led them into the Promised Land. After all of them were dead and gone, there was this period of time before the first king of Israel. And who was that? Saul. So the period of time between Joshua and Caleb and the David and, uh, and the walls of Jericho and the battles with all the kings, that inhabitation of the promised land. Then there was a period of the judges. And then there was Joshua. Uh, then there was uh, Ruth. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Last verse in Judges. And it was the time of the judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then the very first line in Ruth says, it was the time of the judges. So we think that this, this period of time prior to the judges or during the time of the judges, maybe somewhere around 1150 BC is when the events happened. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that's when it was written. Personal opinion. I think the events happened somewhere around 1150 to 1200 BC. And I think it was probably written shortly thereafter. I actually think it was written during the latter part of David's kingship. Because there's a little bit of it that feels like an apologetic for David's kingship. It glorifies the town of Bethlehem. Where is David from? And what was the uh, prevailing opinion of people from Bethlehem? They were looked down. They were shepherds. They were they were the, the small area, the small tribe. And so David coming from Bethlehem and having to claw his way to the kingship with all the battles with Saul with Absalom, with Amnon, with all of the, the, the drama that was in his kingship, and then the famous adultery that produced a son, Solomon, it feels a little bit to me like maybe it was written 
towards the end of David's reign as a sort of a justification of some of the darker places of his kingship. Now, it's just speculation. Bible studiers do that all the time. It just, it, it feels like it might have been written this. And then a part of me went along with one of the scholars who said he doesn't think David wrote it. There's a, a definite feminine touch. And so he said, what about Tamar? What about, what about Ruth's great-granddaughter? Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. So at the very end of Ruth, we, we get the, the sort of the, the marker that tells us that David was known, David was the king, because we get his genealogy. And so we get Boaz, Ruth and Boaz, their child was Obed. Obed's child was Jesse. Jesse's child was David. David's child was Tamar. Uh, maybe. Maybe. So it's just fun. It's just fun to speculate. We really can't pinpoint the dates. We really can't pinpoint the author. But we can make observations about the story that maybe drop us a few breadcrumbs about where it might have been. Why is any of that important? Well, Ruth is a story that we believe to be historical. I don't have any reason to doubt the historicity of this book. Nonetheless, the construction of it as a story is excellent. It's just, it is marvelously put together. It is, it is crafted by uh, a true author. And so whoever wrote it, and by the way, most of the early scholars think it was Samuel, maybe. But it's just, it's written with a, a sense of movement through the story that makes all of us read it and go, that is a great play. That is a great movie. That is a great, it, it, as a short story, it, it really holds together well. But we kind of need to know the backstory of the players so that we'll know the villains and the heroes and why it's such a great story. So it starts off, and I'm, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm only going to do my five verses, but I'm going to cover a little bit extra. In the days when the judges ruled, that's obviously a spiritual lesson from the very starting gate. The writer wants us to know that God is still at work, even in the worst of times. It was the time of the judges, the last verse in Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So a reader would have known what we know, that the time of the judges was immorality, idolatry, excess, narcissism, uh, uh, impartial, uh, partial partiality in terms of justice. The time of the judges was a dark time. And so when the writer Ruth introduces us, I'm going to tell you a story about the darkest of times. But know this, God is at work. He, he, he is a covenant keeper even when they don't. 
And so you're going, the time of the judges, well, what does that remind us of? Does anybody remember, we've talked about it in here before, and here you've heard it a hundred times, a, a, a thing called the cycle of the judges, the, the thing that was uh, the, the repetitious cycle that took place in the book of Judges, where the people were living in uh, obedience to God, and then they didn't. They disobeyed. Then uh, a calamity happened, a foreign enemy, an attack, a famine, a flood. And then the people cried out to God for a leader. And God appointed a judge who would bring the message to the people. And he would speak to God on behalf of the people and on, to the people on behalf of God. And the judge would deliver them. And then the, the, the sense of balance and, and harmony and, and oneness with God would return. And then they would sin again. And then they would be judged again. And then he would raise up a judge again. And then so this cycle repeats all the way through the judges. So the reader of this would have thought immediately, hey, I know what happened during the judges. The people mess up. They get consequences. They cry out for a leader. God supplies a judge. He delivers them. They're back to prosperity. They sin. They have consequences. They cry out to God. And it's, I get it. God is still at work even amongst corrupt leaders, even amongst a corrupt culture. And my point Sunday is that God is still at work in families, even though our culture makes the time of the judges look relatively spiritual. So he is still at work. But there was famine in the land. Now, should we link that with judgment? Yes. Yeah, I think the writer intends for us to. He said it was the time of the judges. What happened during the time of the judges? You they say you read. And, and so he says, so there was famine in the land. That land probably was talking about Judah because there was famine in Judah. Was there, did God withhold the rain? Possibly. Did they mismanage the crops? Possibly. Was he just not letting crops grow? Possibly. Most likely it was drought. Uh, most likely the, the Jordan didn't produce enough water to irrigate the entire land, and there was famine. I think it might even be more than that, because I, I look at uh, what happened with Joshua in uh, Egypt and the famine then, and how God used that famine to push Israel and his family exactly where he needed them to be uh, so that they could grow into a nation. I wonder if God didn't do the same thing with judgment alongside that, pushing Ruth exactly where she needed to be in order for David, the person he needed to have, to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I, I'm very sure this story leads us to another story. Did y'all all hear it? Everybody was able to hear that? I am very sure that the writer knew that he or she was writing a bridge between the judges and the king. The, the chronicler uh, is, is is well aware of Ruth. And, and so uh, she is very aware that she's she is legitimizing David as a Bethlehemite and as a legitimate king. See, see, King David was the one who was the ancestor of Jesus. 
Yeah. Now in the lineage, oh, David, she, Naomi, no, Ruth was the grandmother of David. Correct. No, um, the great grandmother. Great grandmother. Great grandmother. Great grandmother of Tamar. Now, the writer of Ruth knew nothing of Jesus. The writer of Ruth didn't have uh, the even the prophecies of the 8th century prophets, Amos and Isaiah, and she, the, the, whoever wrote Ruth, didn't have the advantage of knowing the generations that would follow. But Matthew did. And Matthew was careful to preserve the genealogy that we see at the end of Ruth, as was Luke. Now, we can talk a lot about the differences between those two genealogies, but both of them are careful to say that the the there were generations between uh, Genesis and the uh, inhabitation of the promised land. There were generations between that and David. There were generations between David and Jesus. And so if I won't do that because I don't have time, but if we, if we were to look at those this genealogy at the end of Ruth is imported into Matthew. And so it was obviously thought uh, to be legitimate and accurate by the writers, the scholars, the Jewish people who brought us eventually the New Testament. Okay, I, I, I've been wandering around and I don't need to do that. So a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn. Now, that phrase, went to sojourn, usually talks about uh, a long trip, but one with an ending. In other words, it's, it's not indicating that he's planning to go to Moab and stay there. He's not emigrating to Moab. He's planning to go there, be able to feed his family, then get his family back to Bethlehem. That, that, that's... The language indicates that he is not being disobedient to the point of, would you go out there and my daughter, she needs my keys. She needs her keys that she locked in my car. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So went to sojourn usually indicates a, a sort of an extended trip, but not Let's not buy a house and get comfortable. But we know that it didn't work out that way. But because if you look down in verse four, it says that by the time Ruth and by the time Naomi thought it was time to go back to Judah, it had been a decade. And so, again, in background, think about all the lessons God is teaching us through this story. The story may be thousand years old. Is that right? No. 2,500 years old. Yes. Might be a lot old, but it still teaches us a lot of lessons about the family. All right. So he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Why is that a problem? Who remembers Abraham and Lot? Okay. 
when Abraham and Lot decided to separate, Lot settled in a place near Sodom and Gomorrah. Most people think that Sodom and Gomorrah were on the east side of the Jordan River in what today we call Jordan, the country of Jordan, probably just northeast of the Dead Sea. The land of Moab was, a, was immediately south of that. So a lot of times Moab and Edom are interchangeable. But the reason I brought up Lot, does anybody know the sordid story that I can't tell among children? Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah. So no, no. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Yeah. Everybody with me? Back in Genesis, Abraham has to go and rescue his nephew, Lot, because the Sodomites are pretty much what that word has become known today. They were Sodomites. And they were awful. They were immoral. They were abusive. And God said, I've had enough. I'm going to rain down fire on them and just eradicate the city. Abraham begged to get his nephew out of there. God allowed it. He said, get out of there and don't look back. What happened to Lot's wife? She oh, looked back, became the Morton Sulphur. And so Lot is now a widower, right? Yes. Now, his daughters, perhaps overreacting a bit, said, we're the last people on the earth. He's destroyed everything. And they took it upon themselves to begin the repopulation of planet Earth. They got their dad drunk, and then each one of them had intercourse with his, their dad, and each one of them produced a child. The oldest one produced a child named, wait for it, Moab. The youngest one produced a child named Ammon. So, Ammon, Ben Ammon. But the Ammonites... And the Moabites uh, trace their lineage back that far. And so there was enmity from the very beginning because Abraham was the father of the Israelites. And then Lot's children, grandchildren, yeah. both, uh, they became the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And by the way, if you're just a geography geek, what's the capital of Jordan? Ammon. Ammon, yeah. Which is Ammon. So, so it's really fascinating to me how all of this history just crosses over. All right. So we got the Moabites living in southern or south-central Jordan, just east of the Jordan River. The Israelites living on the other side of the river, other side of the river and north is Bethlehem. So they would have migrated across the, the Jericho Road and then across the Jordan River and then south to Moab and Elimelech, 
all of a sudden I want to sing, right? No living but that, no living but that, no living but that. Okay, about that. And here Sunday morning, we'll do the whole thing. Do the whole the lion sleep time. So Elimelech took his wife, Naomi, two good little Jewish people. Naomi's name means pleasant. Uh, pleasant, joyful. So they migrate to Moab and the, uh, the there's a part of me that's pretty sure the writer of uh, of Ruth is a man because of the way he handles this. There's no feeling, there's no emotion, there's no empathy. It says the uh, they went to sojourn, verse one, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the man was wife was Naomi, the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrites. Uh, that's likely a clan within the tribe of Judah. So to the, the, there are some writers that are synonymous with Bethlehem and, and uh, uh, Epaphra, Epaphra Titus. That, so Ephra. Ephra Titus. Yeah. So Ephra would have been the other name for Bethlehem in some readings. But I, I, I take it to mean that there was a subset within Bethlehem that was the clan Epaphrodites or Epaphras. And that they, because when they came back, they had to identify a kinsman. And it wouldn't have been the whole population of Bethlehem. It would have been within their family or their clan. And that's why I think that uh, it, it's going out of the way to say that they were uh, Epaphrodites. F. I can never say that, and maybe I'll look it up. So they went into the country of Moab and remained there. And here's the man speak. You ready? But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. How'd he die? No matter what from. Was he sick long? Or his last words? Was Naomi with it? Was it a sudden death? Was it? Was it? Was he judged? Did he have an accident? Did he just get sick? Did the journey exhaust him? Did Naomi exhaust him? <laughs> he died. He died. <laughs> and it gets worse. She was left with two sons. He died. These took Moabite wives. Another disobedience in terms of spiritual instructions that God had given the name of one was Orpah, the other Ruth. Only reason that sentence is in there is to introduce Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Here's Mansfield. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And that's all I get to cover on Sunday. <laughs> Alan T is going to cover the next part the following Sunday. But I, I have to end there. And I'm okay with that. Because we need to understand how desperate she was. 
We, we need to stop. It's like we need to stop on Good Friday and not talk about Easter for us to understand how dejected the disciples really were. How they didn't understand resurrection. They'd never seen it except for Lazarus. And Jesus orchestrated all of that. Now they killed Jesus. Good Friday leaves him on the cross. And we Christians hardly talk about Good Friday without talking about Easter Sunday. And we should. We, 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 we absolutely should connect the resurrection to, the, to the, the doom and gloom of Good Friday. But when we stop right here, we don't jump to the end. Oh, but she's going to have grandchildren to bounce on her knees. We go, wait a minute. There's so much there. They lived there a decade. Isn't that enough time for them to produce children? Did Malon and Chilion die at the beginning of the 10 years or the end of the 10 years? We don't know. We know that something was going on and we see God's supernatural hand and we almost see the time of the judges where they're kind of leaning on some poor decisions that Elimelech made and that then his sons made. And I don't know if Naomi was complicit. She was a, a Jewish wife, likely did whatever her husband told her to do. But they get to the to the to, to Moab, they've settled among people who worship a God who instructs them to burn their children. They are worshiping uh, all kinds of pagan entities. So the reader kind of expects that there's going to be some consequences to a lot of poor decision-making. Number one, didn't trust God for food. Number two, took their family to a pagan land. Number three, remained in there a decade. Number four, uh, allowed the sons to take foreign wives. And so the reader, especially if it's a Jewish reader, is thinking the hammer's about the fall of these people. And, and so the reader is not surprised at knowing Naomi's circumstances. Now, what do we expect's gonna happen? What do we do when it seems like one thing after another? Some have called Naomi the female Job because it just seemed like one thing after another. What's the norm? What would you expect a reaction? Uh, curse God. Okay. Um, become bitter. Woe is me. Frustration. Where are you, God? Why me? I was a good guy. I was just a wife. I was doing what my husband said. So some might read and go, well, Naomi, she didn't deserve any of it. She is yeah. just obedient wife, just doing whatever her husband told her to do. All right. What else do we observe about these first five verses? And by the way, you, you'll never be able to read another story somewhere else without Moab triggering something in your memory. Because now you, you're aware of this land. And so when Amos uh, preaches judgment against the Moabites, 
He says three things that God has against you and four, seven is the perfect number. So three plus four is seven. That's a lot of judgment that Amos is, is prophesying. And I actually found a list. Moab is mentioned in Judges, Numbers, Judges, uh, Judges 11, Numbers 22, Exodus 15, Numbers 25, Judges 3, Judges 10, 1 Samuel 14, 2 Samuel 8, 2 Samuel 12, 1 Chronicles 18, 1 Kings 11, 2 Kings 3. Over and over is the depiction of this animosity between the Israelites and later the tribe of the, the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribes of Judah, and then over on the other side of the Jordan River is Moab, Edom, Ammon. And there is continual animosity, even though, as Gary said from the very beginning, they were blood cousins. Lot was Abram's, Abram's nephew, and it was his sons, grandsons that became the fathers of these tribes, these, these people groups that opposed. Uh, oh, here's a good bonus question. I just, I just thought of one. Who remembers the story of Joshua entering the promised land? Moses had died. Okay, so Moses died. By the way, Moses died very near Moab. Mount Nebo is, is in Jordan. But if you think about the route of the Exodus, they went south out of Egypt through the southern part of what we would today call Israel. They would have crossed the, the Dead sea. Red, sea Red Sea to get them on the other side of the Jordan River. And then they would have migrated north through what we call today Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River because they had to cross the Jordan again from east to west to get to Jericho. All right. So remember the flood of the Jordan River, Joshua chapter 3. But before that, he asked permission of the Moabite king they said no. for passage through his land to get to Jericho. And Moab said no. And that was the story of the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, and his prophet, who was named Balaam, and Balaam's talking donkey. And because of that incident, God pronounced a curse on Moab. So when in the rest of this series, we see that a Moabite woman, Ruth, pledges her loyalty to Yahweh, the Hebrew God, your God will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you lie, I will lie. Your God will be my God. There's a conversion experience there where now she is forsaking the centuries and, and essentially she's reversing a curse. Now, this is individual. This is not collective because Amos was 700 years later and he was still pronouncing curses on Moab. But Ruth, 
she broke a generational curse. And I think about how many people in our church, in our families, didn't have a very good hand dealt to them. They, their parents split up or maybe one died. I, I've got two weddings on my calendar this spring. One of a, a, a young man whose grandmother is going to walk him down the aisle because that's who raised him. Parents both died, and, uh, and and his grandmother is the only mother he's ever known. It's great to have a grandmother, but you could say he wasn't dealt the best of hands. Maybe there's drugs involved. Maybe there's incarceration involved, divorce involved, abandonment involved, poverty involved. Ruth demonstrates to us that even though the culture may be toxic. Maybe our, our lot in life, forgive the pun, that maybe our, our circumstances aren't great, but Ruth is an example of one who moved towards God for choices that we see in the genealogy in chapter 4. She broke the cycle of pagan worship. She broke the cycle of uh, not having a father in the home. She broke the cycle of childlessness. She broke, she broke the curse. And, and if we say the famine was because of judgment, the childlessness, the barrenness was because of judgment, the death of the husband, the death of the sons was because of judgment. It, it, even if we say God just struck all those people dead in the redemption and hope of Ruth's story we kind of get okay God I may be in some circumstances but the way I react is going to affect future generations the way I interact is going to affect children and grandchildren uh, we we see in a story that's that's further down the road when they get back to Bethlehem, the whole community rejoices because they come back and and they say Naomi, your name means pleasant. She said, "Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitterness." And yet we see God take that bitterness and turn it into promise. And so the the Christians who read Ruth. Read it and see redemption. That the, the, the kinsman redeemer that Boaz was becomes the Christ figure for us. He redeems out of sin. He redeems out of brokenness. He redeems out of, out of a, a worship of something besides the true covenant-keeping Yahweh. The Jew who would read this book reads of God's, um, the Hebrew word for it is transliterated H-E-S-E-D. And you say it like you're clearing your throat. And it means unfailing love. It means unilateral, unfailing, absolutely no strings attached to love. 
And, and the Hebrew would say only God is capable of that kind of love. Only God is completely capable of a love that has no boundaries and no strings. And so the Hebrews would tell you that the, the, one of the main themes of Ruth is God's chesed love. You spell that again? We transliterated H-E-S-E-D, chesed, but it's pronounced in the Hebrew chesed. Now that was Ruth's love for the mother-in-law, I mean for Naomi? Boaz's love of Boaz. Boaz is willing to be the kinsman redeemer, willing to put his own, um, I mean, he probably took a hit in his reputation taking a Moabitess uh, as a wife, even if she was the, the daughter-in-law of, of a Bethlehemite, an Epaphrodite. So much here. We've got a great series that we're opening up. And we'll be in it six weeks. Uh, I'll do the prologue on Sunday. And then we'll do scene one and scene two and scene three and scene four. And then we'll do an epilogue with the genealogy. If it's written as a story, we might as well treat it as a story. So I'm looking forward to Sunday. Questions, comments? I would challenge you to read Ruth every day. Take about 20 minutes to read all four chapters. Do we, do we know what happened to the other one, the, to the sister-in-law? No idea. Uh, no idea. But it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, did you hear what Skip asked? Do we know what happened to Orpah? We don't know. You want to know the legend? Okay. Yeah. Grain of salt, right? Speculation, the legend. Jewish legend or well, we know a lot about this from the Babylonian Talmud, which is is sort of a, a wisdom collection that was found in Babylon. The speculation is that Orpah went back to her home, which was near a little town called Gath. And that she remarried, and that she had some boys who were exceptionally large. <laughs> Goliath and his four brothers. <laughs> Speculation. They're mentioned at the end of 2 Samuel. Why did David pick up four rocks, five rocks? Did he think he was going to have five shots at Goliath? No, Goliath had four brothers. So it's speculated that Orpah was uh, the mother or grandmother of the really big boys from Gath. <laughs> so who knows? It's, it's just more fantasy, not substantiated by anybody. Sorry, but that's one of the rumors that's floating about. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> hey, I did a lot of reading to prepare for this kind of stuff. So uh, uh, that's just one of the legends out there. Just curious. And uh, truth is, we don't know what happened to Orpah. Yeah. Orpah. How would she get from Moab to Canaan? That doesn't make sense. That legend. I could follow it if it made sense. Well, the Philistines would have been uh, invading. 
Oh, one of those. Yeah, so the, the Goliath that fought David, uh, and if Ruth was his grandmother, it makes sense that Orpah might have been Goliath's grandmother. And uh, and that would have been Philistia and, you know, all these people from the east side of the Jordan, they continue to stick with the people from Israel. I agree. Are you familiar with the Six-Day War? That was quick. 1960. Yeah. Do you remember who was involved? Moshe Diane. Uh, David Ben Gurion was oh, the, the head of Israel. Do you remember the countries that were involved? Jordan, Egypt, Syria. Syria. Same people that were fighting against them back in these days. So why should we be surprised that Jordan and Israel would be fighting? Right now they're at peace. Uh, Jordan and Israel have a uh, sort of a uh, an uneasy peace now uh, because they realize the mutual tourism between the two countries benefits both economies, and so you you still have some issues when we go to Israel. If we go to Jordan, we have to unload our bus at the the country line walk across the border between Israel and Jordan and reload our luggage onto a Jordanian bus with a Jordanian guide and a Jordanian driver. So the Jewish guy can take you to the border, but the Arab guy has to take you from there. Uh, same in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in uh, um, Arab-controlled uh, territory now. West. So when we have a guide in Bethlehem, it has to be an Arab guide. All right. We, uh, next week, I will join you remotely. I'm teaching a class in Texas. Uh, but on Wednesday night, I will be on screen from lovely Brownwood, Texas. Uh, and the pop quiz will be if you can find it on a map. <laughs> All right. So. All right. Good night, everybody.